make sure you're always nice to the people's temple. If they ask you to do something, do it. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes and instead get up close and personal with the lesser known legacies and real life bad behavior of some of history's most notable and beloved people. Speaking of real life bad behavior, but of the very best kind, happy pride. Yes, happy pride month. I mean, what do you have to be prideful about, proud of? You're <laughs> straight. I'm I'm happy for pride, I guess. <laughs> Good for you, Pride. Be proud. <laughs> the rest of us over here, Just super proud. Very proud. Although I, I will say it is, uh, I feel like it's getting kind of corporate, honestly. I mean, it is fully commodified. I actually had a full-on conversation with my therapist about it this week, about the mixed feelings I have as a queer person during Pride over the past few years and how it's you know, slap a rainbow sticker on it and suddenly Campbell's soup is an ally or whatever the fuck, you <laughs> <Yes>. know? <laughs> yes. Stonewall was a riot, but this has become corporate. I mean, God, if they'll commodify pride, what is next? They say, you know, they're going to be commodifying uh, Amazon Prime Day, you know? Just <laughs> <laughs> nothing is sacred anymore. No. Hallmark's going to come out with cards for like Black Friday. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It, it loops so far around the commercialization <laughs> process yes. that you then get to celebrating uh, consumerism. Yes, uh, I feel like we're we're almost there. We're very close. But, but it, is, it is a great month. Yes. Coming up on what is uh, the sixth year? anniversary of the legalization of gay marriage across the u.s that's right six years i remember where i was when it happened big day yeah big moment and uh yeah didn't think it was gonna happen still don't have a wife (laughs) it's very upsetting i've had six years to get it together (laughs) look look it's true can i just be honest with you uh rarely if ever it's not all it's cracked up to be Don't. I know it sounds good in theory, but take it from somebody who knows. You you don't really want it. Yeah, take it from the half of this marriage who has a wife. It's uh, on the other side. is It's not as lovely either. Yeah, grass is always greener, but yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. Fair enough. In honor of Pride Month, this week's hero is Harvey Milk. So, what do you know about Harvey Milk? I know a handful of things. But I'm going to tell you the two most important things I know about him. Okay. I know that he was the first openly gay elected official yes. in the United States. That's correct. I mean, there's a lot of closeted folks before him. But <laughs> yes. Yes, like, there were. Always. Um, and I know that Sean Penn played him in the movie titled either Harvey or Milk, but I can't remember <laughs> which one. So can I just say, I just, those are two movies. They both exist. <laughs> One's about a rabbit, They are right? two very different <laughs> movies. So the 2008... So it's Milk, it's Milk, it's Milk. <laughs> the 2008 Sean Penn movie is Milk. Uh, yes, and then the, the like 1940s movie is called Harvey, which is about a man who has an imaginary friend who's a six-foot-tall bunny okay. that nobody else can see, 
uh, but that he makes everybody else pretend is real. So you can see where I got mixed up. <laughs> yes, you could. <laughs> I could see that. Uh, yeah, it is called Milk. It is called Milk. He was also assassinated for his activism. That's pretty well known about him. I did know that. Um, also, fun fact about the movie, actually, Jeff Koons played one of the characters, Art Agnes. Why is that a fun fact? Jeff Koons, the artist, just like randomly. Oh, oh wow. Yeah, we've talked about other random artists. I'd, sure. He's never had any other movie roles that I know of. And Good. I he doesn't need any more publicity. But he was in that. He was in that movie. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, uh, he is definitely a hero by uh, a lot of people's standards. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Obama in 2009. Mm-hmm. Anything else? I, you've hit the high points. Great. Well, then, let's get to know him. Actually, before we dive in for a second, I I want to pause to like frame this episode. Because if it's not <laughs> immediately clear from the introduction, I am a cis heterosexual guy who is doing a story on somebody who is widely, near universally considered to be an icon in the fight for gay rights and gay liberation at the time, right? Like, mm-hmm. so the first question is why, right? Why bother? Why am I doing? Why am I, you know, the right person or even a person that? should do this. Sure. And I, I think there's a couple of reasons why this is a conversation worth having. One, I think it is important that we are honest with ourselves about even people who are genuine heroes in a lot of ways, or at least do genuinely heroic things, mm-hmm. to be upfront with the fact that like they are human too. Yes. Right? They are human, they have flaws, and being upfront and honest about that I think not just contextualizes their own work, I think, but it also makes clear that like the fight for rights and the fight for social justice does not require superhumans. Right. The prerequisite shouldn't be perfection. It's like you can be a messy person and still fight for things that are meaningful and good in the world. I totally agree. In fact, uh, I saw a TikTok earlier this week that was, uh, I think, posted to Twitter and then linked on Reddit, which said mm. that it was it was a millennial therapist, right? And he was saying, so millennials, I'm going to be honest with y'all, it is time for y'all to run for office. Right. And when he said this, he's like, but here's the problem. I've been in therapy with y'all. And here's the thing. Y'all have, y'all have stories. Yeah. Right? You have somebody, you have somebody in your life and you are the worst story in that person's life, right? <laughs> right, you, right. you have fucked over somebody in your time, right? Mm-hmm. And what he said was, guess what? Everybody has those, mm-hmm. and you should not let those flaws scare you. In fact, like, I've talked to a lot of y'all, and I've never talked to a millennial who has any closets, any skeletons in their closet worse than Devin Nunes, for example, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> or Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? Like, yep. like, there are people out there who are advocating for extreme positions and who are the furthest thing from a perfect person. And so I think it can both humanize heroes and, like, let us be honest about, like, what the work has looked like and also, you know, aspire to not repeat any mistakes of the past, if that makes sense. Yeah, and we've talked about this before. It is difficult from our perspective to feature people from marginalized communities because what we don't want to do is give fodder to, you know, dissenters or people who uh, dislike that person for whatever specific ism, right, racism, any sort of phobia, homophobia, et cetera. Like, we don't want to um, add fuel to that fire, but we 
just want to be honest about the fact that humans are complicated and stories are messy and you can do good things and still do really shitty things also. Yes, yes. So in the spirit of speaking honestly about the dead and also paving the way for the future advocates of our world, Mm -hmm. let's discuss the life story of Mr. Harvey Milk. Excited to do it. He was born on May 22nd, 1930, in the suburbs of New York City. He was the son of Lithuanian immigrant parents. His grandfather owned a department store, so they were solidly middle class. Uh, he, he apparently was made fun of as a kid for having like disproportionate features, gave him a thick skin. And as he grew older, he just kind of learned to put on more of a tough guy persona. He was reportedly interested in opera as a kid from an early age, but also then like took on football and played football pretty aggressively as well. Kind of balanced out uh, anything that would make him not seem tough enough, you could say. Complex human being. Exactly. He graduated from high school in 1947, went on to the New York State Teachers College where he majored in math. Some people who went to college with him reportedly said he was a, quote, man's man. He didn't seem like he was gay at all, which there could be a lot of reasons for that, right? 1947 was not a comfortable time to be a gay person in America. But yes, you can imagine that if you uh, have secrets or you are don't feel safe in who you are, that you take on a lot of behaviors that would help protect you. And some of those could be, you know, performing masculinity in ways that people notice. Sure. And I mean, I feel like this is as good a time as any to point out that the phrase a man's man could be interpreted two ways here. <laughs> yes, that's true. That is true. One is a man's man in the traditional toxic masculinity, like, oh, I'm a man. I do manly things. The other could be a bit more like a man's man in terms of like, I'm a gay man. Possessive man's man. Yes. Well, so the rest of that quote, <laughs> uh, just for context, mm-hmm. was he was a real man's man. There was no indication that he was a, quote, queer Probably for his own safety. Sounds like a smart plan. Yes. In the 40s or 50s. Yes, 1947. Uh, by the 50s, the Korean War had started. Ooh. So he decided, after he graduated, to join the Navy. This is before the YMCA song in the Navy. No. Okay. Uh, but it is where he ended up. He served on a submarine rescue ship uh, as a diving officer. Wow. Which seems like a really fucking intense thing to do in the Navy. Like, if people are going to die on a submarine, you're diving down there to try to, like, repair and or save them. One or two of our most fervent Meet Your Heroes fans include um, a, a husband and wife. The husband does something in the Navy with diving, and he's, like, very good at it. He's, oh. like like, a boss, boss diver. Wow. I know. So shout out to them, you and Harvey Milk. Yes. In fact, Harvey Milk was so good after he served as a diving officer, you know, in the war, he actually came back to the States and was an instructor. He was so good. He was teaching people. How I to think do this. that's what this guy does. No way. Yeah. Look at this. Just message us. You know who you are. Let me know if I got it right. Yeah. It uh, seems impressive on your Instagram. I don't know anything about <laughs> it, though. Yes. I won't even go in a public pool. So. <laughs> I mean, that is true. I can attest to that. Um, at this point, he well, so after he was an instructor, he left the Navy in 1955. For the record, and this will come up later, there's no evidence that his sexuality was known or acknowledged while he served. 
Uh, it's hard to find the records of his discharge, but it seems like his sexuality was a non-issue, and he did mm-hmm. a lot of work to keep it separate from his professional life, both in the Navy and, as we'll see, in other jobs he took as he went on. Sure. After he left the Navy, though, and he entered private life, he started teaching back in Long Island, and he entered the first relationships with men in his life. So until this point, he had never kind of had that space from family or like with in the military, obviously, it was a mm-hmm. non-starter. Um, but he met Joe Campbell in 1956, and they moved in together shortly thereafter. So he's like 26. Yes. Got it. They were together for six years, which is the longest relationship that he had in his life. Wow. We've been talking a lot about kind of the lengths, you know, people could go to kind of master sexuality. Mm-hmm. Just as a reminder, all, you know, being gay was illegal. Yes. Practically speaking, functionally speaking, literally speaking, there were in there were publicly public decency laws, there were sodomy laws, there were just like a number of different, you know, legal mechanisms by which if you were even, you know, suspected of being gay, you could be thrown in jail most places. Mm-hmm. Sodomy laws started being repealed in the 60s, uh, but the last 13 states actually never repealed them. They they weren't repealed until the Supreme Court case Lawrence versus Texas in 2003. Wow. So like up until up until the 21st century, you if you were suspected of being in a gay relationship, there were 13 states where people could find a reason to arrest you and throw you in jail. That is a real thou doth protest too much vibe for me. Like <laughs> yes. if you yes. really care, like why are you thinking about or caring about the intimate relationships of other people to the point where you're like, I am so concerned about this. I need to jail one or both of them. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a reasonable question. In 2003, the Supreme Court rationale for that decision was basically that the right to privacy that was established in Roe v. Wade also extended to your bedroom to say that, yeah, nobody should give a shit. It doesn't matter to <laughs> anybody else. It's your own damn business. Consenting adults. In New York State, uh, in the 50s, that was clearly not the case yet. Certainly um, not. New York sodomy laws weren't overruled until 1980 in that particular state. They actually didn't change the law until 2000, but the courts invalidated all their rules in 1980. Anyway, Got it was it. super illegal to be gay um, there as it was almost everywhere else in the country at the time. Harvey, who had majored in math, he had a job as a statistician in an insurance office. Mm. Right, So he was like white collar, making decent money. And he just worked very hard in this first phase of his life when he entered his first relationships with men to, like, keep his professional life very separate from his romantic life. J. Edgar Hoover style. Yes, J. Edgar Hoover style. Exactly. Over time, after the six years, him and Joe Campbell broke up, and then he started a relationship with Craig Rodwell, Mm -hmm. who was 10 years younger than him. Craig, though unlike Joe, was an activist. So he was in one of these first waves that was actively, vocally advocating for gay rights. Craig was arrested at a protest. This made Harvey very nervous. Sure. He was, he had a good white-collar job. Um, He did not want a lot of fuss. He did not want anything that was, like, dangerous or could potentially expose him. So he, he broke up with Craig because of his activism and his arrest. Wow. So even though Harvey Milk's going to get there, he starts off uh, not just like hesitant, but actively distancing himself from a lot of the people on the early days of this movement. To be fair, that's where a lot of activists start. It's scary. Yes. Kind of doubling down on the job security, Harvey Milk leaves his job as a statistician to go work on Wall Street. So 
crunching more numbers. Yeah. Well, he's an analyst. So, yeah, he's crunching numbers and like. And now bigger numbers. Bigger numbers. Exactly. <laughs> um, he's good at it. He's promoted a bunch of times. He, he's very cocky about it, and like brags and rubs it in the face of people who have been there for longer than him. I mean, depending on the size of numbers that you can crunch, it's there's little bragging rights that come with it. Sure. Yeah. There's a big difference between balancing your checkbook and like defrauding investors. <laughs> yes. I have no idea how, how much fraud he was into. Uh, but hey. Wall Street, never good. Yeah, it's a price of entry. Exactly. So, 1964 comes around. It is the presidential election. Mm-hmm. And as a firm believer in Wall Street, Harvey Milk Mm-mm. joins Barry Wa- Goldwater's 1964 Republican presidential campaign. A-U-H-2-O. What? That was his slogan. Vote A-U-H-2-O. Oh, that's right. A-U Goldwater. is gold symbol. <laughs> H-2-O water. That's funny. I... I didn't, I didn't know that. I, that's the only thing I know about Goldwater, and I only know that from Quiz Team. <laughs> so tell me more about Barry Goldwater. <laughs> that is that is embarrassing to know. Uh, good for you, though. Good for you. You didn't know it. I did Five seconds ago. So who are you to say what's embarrassing and what's not? Yes, Goldwater was running against Kennedy. Uh, so yeah, so Harvey Milk, right, despite his like activist persona, is a Wall Street analyst who is working on Republican presidential campaigns against people, against Kennedy and people who are advocating for gay causes at the beginning of his career, right? Got it. He is like Got it. fully invested in keeping things as quiet and conservative as possible. Now, you may be surprised to find that Harvey was not the only gay man working on this Republican's presidential campaign. Shocked. <laughs> right? And uh, on the campaign trail, he meets uh, and starts a relationship with Jack McKinley. Okay. The real bummer here is that Jack McKinley is 16 years old. Oh, no. That is a real bummer. Yes. So At co- this point, that's like half his age. Yes. He is 34. Oh, no. This kid is less than half his age. Oh, no. I'm... 34. And if I see a 16-year-old, I'm like, oh, you are from a different planet. Now imagine that 16-year-old is a Republican. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's just pause here, right? Age of consent in New York then and now is 17 years old. Still very young for a 34-year-old. Yes. Um, If he was 17, it would technically be legal, uh, but this is not. This is sex with an underage boy. Yeah. I'm not... I'm not leaning toward any technicalities here. Yes. And this is independent of political party. This is the first, but this will not be the last troubled youth that Harvey Milk will have a relationship with. Right? Wait, why is he troubled? This particular kid, Jack McKinley, has uh, bouts of depression and has uh, at several points like makes threats to end his own life. Maybe because he's being groomed by a 34-year-old. Yes. So I just so I'm going to pause here and like step back because in this in the vein of like being honest about the his, history of these heroes, right? Like uh we have not we, we have been transparent when other historical figures have, you know, had sex with underage girls, for example. Alexander Graham Bell. Yes. 15-year-old wife called him a pedophile. Stand by it. Yes. Definitely am not excusing or dismissing this behavior. What I do want to say, though, is in this particular context, I want to recognize that there are in particular myths and lies about gay men that are weaponized and used by right wing activists to justify 
larger systemic oppression and discrimination. The assumption that all gay men are grooming young boys. Yes, right? So I think two things are, are going to happen, right? So one, I think there is, it is not an excuse to say that Harvey Milk, right, was like grooming teenage boys, right? Right. And also, just to establish and specifically call out the false myths about homosexuality and pedophilia, for example, and then mm-hmm. separately, gay men and, and teenagers are post-pubescent adolescents. Okay. So I'm going to just those two things separately, just to call out the myths that get repeated here, mm-hmm. there are decades of research for both of these that establish that there is no evidence that gay men molest children at higher rates than heterosexual men. Dr. Gregory Herrick at UC Davis is one of the nation's leading researchers in the area. He has years and years of research. If you dig into the numbers, what you find is that people who are pedophiles are generally attracted to age. Sure. Right? And so people who... uh, Dr. Nicholas Groth at Boston University shows that most people who are uh, attracted to children have no adult relationships. Right? Mm. They, They are not attracted to adult men or adult women. And for those who do have adult relationships, they are disproportionately heterosexual. Yes. So it is not about gay men at all. Mm-hmm. It is about people who are attracted to children. Um, in fact, the, the most recent, like, most rigorous studies are done by Dr. Carol Jenny, who's out, uh, she's a child abuse pediatric specialist at the University of Washington. And she went and studied... 352 medical charts of kids that came into the hospital system there in Mm -hmm. one year Mm. for sexually abused children. In those cases, when they actually check the numbers, the person who was molesting a child was a gay or lesbian adult in fewer than 1% of cases. Wow. So it is explicitly false that gay men are molesting children. There is a subset of that myth that is about gay men and teenagers, mm-hmm. which would be different than children, I guess. Sure. Uh, explicitly when you dig into those numbers. So this was actually first debunked 40 years ago. Wow. In the British Journal of Psychiatry. This experiment is based on penile responses. Okay. So picture with me, if you will. I'll try. <laughs> 40 years ago, uh, doctors wrapping wire around men's penises, hooking it up to a machine, And then having those people hear descriptions of sex, look at pictures of sex, and then measuring with a wire. Newer versions get even fancier with glass tubes and air pressure. This is all to say that there is decades of research now, replicated dozens of times, that gay men are no more attracted to young boys than straight men are to young girls. Got it. There's this myth out there, and... It is not true. Most recently, uh, so with this glass tubes and air pressure uh, thing, it was 2010, Dr. Ray Blanchard, who's a sexologist at the University of Toronto School of Medicine. Wow. um, He did the most precise study ever created on measuring men's erections. Okay. uh, Like this, in this context, 2,278 men and found gay men are no more attracted to children than straight men. It turns out both gay and straight men showed some arousal towards post-pubescent Adolescents, so teenagers, kids uh, who are about the same age as this Jack McKinley mm-hmm. that Harvey White is with. Uh, but in fact, straight men were more often aroused by teens than gay men. Okay. So we are putting to bed the myth that homosexuality is automatically equated with any 
pedophilia or predatory behavior just based on homosexuality alone. Yes. Sex with teenagers or molestation or abuse with kids, like all of those things, there is not a correlation to being gay. So despite the fact that Harvey Milk has this behavior, yes. right, it is not indicative of larger patterns in the, in the gay community, according to literally decades of research. I believe it. This 16-year-old McKinley was a stage manager for a theater. After the Goldwater campaign, Harvey and this kid find out that he has an opportunity to go work on a production of Hair in San Francisco and decide to go for it. So Milk and McKinley moved to San Francisco. I don't know if you're aware of this, Mm -hmm. but San Francisco has a reputation as being a relatively gay city. Gay-friendly. Okay, it's a gay city. Yeah, it's a gay city. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Uh, I mean, uh, explicitly, it it had the highest uh, percentage of gay people per capita of anywhere in the United States. Yes, yes. (laughs) Um, The interesting reason, though, is the U.S. military. I'm not surprised. Yeah, Yeah. it it turns out that as a major port city with, Mm -hmm. again, a large naval presence, ever since the end of World War II, what would happen is there were gay men who invariably would be expelled from the military. Oh, And once they had a dishonorable discharge that explicitly said... You are being kicked out because you're homosexual. Drop them off in the next port, San Francisco? So they were there in San Francisco, yes. After the disciplinary proceedings, there was nowhere else for them to go. They couldn't return home because now they had papers that outed them to their family. Wow. They they basically had papers that would destroy their life if they returned to wherever they came from. Mm. And so they were essentially forced to start a new life in San Francisco. And then just, you know, through this compounding effect... Uh, more and more people, it, you start to have a city that gains a reputation as being a friendly place for you if you mm-hmm. don't fit in somewhere else, and that snowballs. Yeah, and so by 1969, it is the gay capital of America. The real question is, how big are the numbers to crunch there? By the time we get to the 70s, okay, of the 750,000 people in San Francisco, sure, it's estimated that 200,000 of them were gay. Okay, so Harvey Milk can crunch the numbers. Yes, he can crunch those numbers. Just making sure. So him and McKinley show up, and they're like, oh, yeah, we like this vibe. They like it. It's an easier place to kind of be themselves, mm-hmm. not be as scared about being outed. And But then McKinley, McKinley gets an opportunity to move back to New York uh, to work on Jesus Christ Superstar. And Harvey Musk's like, oh, I kind of like it here. Peace. See you later. Wow. So McKinley goes back to New York and Milk stays in San Francisco. At this point, McKinley's an adult, I would imagine. Yeah. I like think, legally. I think we're, he's at least 17, maybe 18 now. Got yeah. it. Harvey's got to find a job. So he gets a job at an investment firm, which is what he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, his Republican self. Found the numbers. <laughs> yeah, found the numbers. And he starts working there. But being in San Francisco at this point, like really starts to change his attitude on life. Because his life in New York was still, like, very close to his family, who was all in the suburbs. So even if he was, like, in the art scene day to day, like, he would be talking to and visiting his family and, like, had relatives. And it was, like, pretty constraining. But out Mm -hmm. in San Francisco, he, like, starts to grow his hair long. Mm. Um, He's Like like, when Dorothy lands in Oz. (laughs) Opens the door. Turns into color. Right? Yeah. When his job at this like very buttoned up investment firm is like you can't cut your hair or you can't grow your hair that long you have to cut it he's like nope not gonna do it so they fire him wow. and he yeah he quits he then realizes he doesn't have any money so oh, he, no. he starts drifting around 
he uh, like catches a ride with some people and heads on to Texas for a while and then back to New York for a little bit. Uh, with a touring theater company, has no background in theater. But... I say, what skills does he bring to the theater company? Yeah, he's he's charisma. Qu- he's quote a manager, which means like I'm sure he's just like a roadie, right? <laughs> sure. Um, he's not a stage manager, but he's hanging out with all these hippies now. Cush gig if you can get it. I'll they tell are, you they're what. not telling him to cut his hair. Let me tell you. There's a New York Times story from the time that was about somebody else in the theater company, mm-hmm. but it includes a one-line description of Milk from this time, and it, quote, described him as a sad-eyed man, dash another aging hippie with long, long hair wearing faded jeans and pretty beads. I hope someday someone describes me the same way. <laughs> that is That is an apt description of who I'm slowly morphing into. <laughs> who you aspire to be. Uh, I will say that his, because he's in New York and this is in the Times, his ex, Craig Rodwell, reads this description of mm-hmm. this like formerly uptight Republican man. <laughs> and it's like, is this the same person? Pretty beads and sad eyes. They'll get you. They will. Uh, turns out it is, though. So, yeah, Milk finds, uh, meets another person named Scott Smith in New York, who was 18 years younger than him at this point. Fast math, he's like 20? Yes, so technically an adult. Sure. Thank goodness. And they decide, you know, as as much as we like this like art scene in New York, let's go back to San Francisco. It's even better. Got it. So they moved it back to San Francisco, and they are just living off of Harvey's savings. Um, he's had all of these Wall Street jobs and stuff, and he's like a hippie with money, at least like for another six to eight months. And then <laughs> six to eight months in, like, oh, we don't, oh, that's right, we're not make. we're just hippieing around. Uh, what are we going to do? Uh, so in 1973, they, after a roll of film that Harvey left at a shop got ruined, he and Scott Smith decide, you know what, let's open a camera shop. Harvey loves taking pictures. They have $1,000 left. So the last $1,000 of his savings they put into a camera store on Castro Street. Like selling cameras or uh, developing film or a both and scenario? Both and. So, right, this is a place where you needed your film developed, but you also, like, needed to buy film and needed camera supplies. And um, they they were a one-stop shop. I recently learned that whenever you get your film developed or used to get your film developed, that whatever teenager was working behind the counter at Walgreens had to look through every single one of your photos and they would often print them three or four times and adjust for color. So if you like, what? If you I had embarrassing like, photos, yeah. I thought it was just like a machine. I mean, just a machine that like spat them out and then you got whatever quality photo you get. They like looked through every single one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Apparently there's, and I heard this on another podcast, but apparently there was this time during the early 90s, and this is totally not related at all, but when middle-class suburban women were starting to get a lot of uh, breast augmentations, it was like a thing that was happening. Wait, what? You know, it was like a, getting a boob job was like a new-ish thing that you could do in the eight, late 80s, early 90s. Okay. No digital cameras. Oh, man. And so there was just like, there was like this onslaught of topless selfies of women who were getting... <laughs> breast augmentations and apparently this was like a thing that happened all across the United States. And and these teenagers would go have to go and like print and extra copies yes. of this for their job. Like, oh, unquote. this is overexposed. We got to run it with this filter, this uh-huh. color. Oh, man. So if you ever took 
nudie photos in San Francisco in the late 60s. Harvey Milk probably saw them. Yeah. Some former teenager may have copies to this day in a shoebox under their bed. Good for you. You never know. Well, their camera shop was popular. It worked. It worked out. People in the neighborhood needed one and they liked it. Mm. But one day, a few weeks after opening, a, a bureaucrat comes in and says that, oh, you have a new business. You've got to collect sales tax. And I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. And they're like, uh, but even before you start collecting sales tax, you have to put a deposit down with the state. We need $100 for a sales tax deposit. What? And Harvey Milk is like furious. He goes off on this guy. He he refuses, chases him out of the store, um, complained for weeks. He he actually went down to the state offices and complained for enough weeks in a row they lowered it down to $30. Yeah, it just deeply offended his, like, small government Republican roots to, like, have to, like, deal with this bureaucracy and give them money in advance. And he was like, this is intolerable. I am going to run for public office and change this. Over this $30. Yes. Yeah, so just to be clear, our former Wall Street banker who, like, has has worked on Republican presidential campaigns, has finally moved to San Francisco and chooses to get into politics. And the thing that puts him over the edge is that he's got to put down a sales tax deposit. <laughs> and he's like, fuck that. Fight the system. Yeah. It's like when women who... Are don't want maternity leave, suddenly have a kid, and they're like, oh, yeah, this should be universal. All parents should get three months off. You're like, yeah, until it happens to you. Yes. Right? Yeah, right? Like, you should want that. You should want equity and uh, just, like, human nice things for other people before it uh, either disenfranchises or inconveniences you. Yeah. It takes, it takes a little imagination, but you would hope that people would care about those things before it it gets to them explicitly. So, Sometimes that's all it takes, though. So Harvey says, okay, I'm going to run for office. And he goes and files. And he chooses that the office that he's going to run for is the city supervisor. Um, so in a city as big as San Francisco, there's six spots. That means, like, there's, you know, if there's 750,000 people, it's over 100,000, like, constituents a, a spot. This is like a big office. It's bigger than some congressional districts, right? Sure. Established activists at the time were not happy, Uh, especially the established activists in the gay community in and around Castro Street where he was. He literally showed up and in the first year, a few months in, gets like annoyed around this like inconvenience, right? right? Uh, Not around anything has to do with like issues of discrimination or like, you know, gay rights. He's just like annoyed by this business thing and decides he's going to waltz in and like run for one of the largest, most influential offices in the city. And there are people who have been like grassroots organizing and working in local and city politics for years, sometimes decades. And they're like, you have not done the groundwork for a position with that much responsibility. Like, you don't know anything about what we need as a community. Like, who are you like waltzing in here being like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to run for this office. He is undeterred. He still decides he's going to run. He was media savvy. He had that going for him, uh, but also just extremely disorganized. Okay. Uh, so he's like, okay, how am I going to do this? He he goes and like tries to campaign in like on the street and like get some volunteers. He ends up coming in 10th out of 32 candidates. Okay. Um, not terrible, but not great. The The thing that he notices though is that 
if there had been an election decided by who was around him, if there had been a local district around Castro Street, mm-hmm. he could have won. The mm. thing is that the city supervisors were elected where everybody in the city just voted for like six options. Ah. And the top vote getters got it. And then they just like divvied up the... It, everybody was like what you'd call an at-large member, right? Right. There's no districts. It was just like everybody yeah. voted for everybody. And then you get into office and they're like, okay, so you, David, get this section. No, they didn't divvy it up after. Everybody's just like they make decisions as a group for the whole city. So like any constituent could go to any person at any time. Exactly. Got it. So he's like, okay, I really want to run for office now. I am... I'm going to push, and he decides he it needs to be done by district. That's the thing that's going to let him win. He also, at this stage, starts doing some of the actual groundwork and like advocacy that everybody that had been there already said he needed to do mm-hmm. and that they had been doing for years. Mm-hmm. Um, so he starts uh, working on like building coalitions. One example is there was a strike that one of the unions was putting on for truck drivers that worked for Coors Brewing Company. Okay. And so he was like, hey, you're having a strike? He went to all the gay bars and said, Coors drivers on strike, don't buy any Coors beer until it's over. And yeah. so like got them to like, in solidarity, stop their purchases, mm-hmm. help them win. And it was like, okay, great. There's like real ground, you know, ground game advocacy that you're doing. Um, the next year when there was a couple that, it was a gay couple that wanted to apply for a business license to open an antique shop. Uh-huh. Uh, and the, that's very cliche. I mean, it, it's not the first, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so when they were applying, though, the Catholic church that's in the neighborhood started like getting upset, fought the business license. Wow. And so because they, they were just like, not another gay antique shop. We don't need any more. And, <laughs> and like, actually, we're the only institution that can hoard antiques. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. we, we would like all the antiques for uh our own purposes. Yes, don't want the competition is what they wanted. But when that happened, Harvey was like, okay, well, great. I'm going to organize a street fair. So we like started this little local business coalition of other businesses. He invited those new business owners. They had like a street fair, got like 5,000 people there to buy things. Wow. Like he, he started actually doing the work that everybody said he needed to do. Uh, and he's expanded what he cared about from his own little like pet annoyance over the sales tax thing into like issues that people actually start to care about. So representing what your people care about is the cornerstone of a politician's job? <laughs> yes, yes. So if you're going to do it, you have to put in that work. Yeah, I, right. It seems like as somebody who was immediately interested as soon as he got there in political power, mm-hmm. like this is the first time when any semblance of like political listening and mm-hmm. <laughs> caring about other people's mm-hmm. uh concerns enters the picture and just like immediately he puts those skills to good use see this is why i could never be a politician i'm not interested in political listening just don't give a shit yeah. about anybody else's problems i mean i give a shit about other people's problems but i'm not trying to be the one to solve all of them i'll tell you <laughs> that i'll give a lot of money to the other folks who are doing a better job at solving them than me but this could never be me okay fair enough fair enough uh, well, it worked out for him. Not immediately, though. So he does this. He runs again in 75. He came in seventh. Progress. Yeah, because it's six spots. The mayor, it was uh, George Moscone was elected mayor. If you know the Moscone Center in San Francisco, that's I him. Uh, he was elected and he acknowledged that like, oh, yeah, Harvey, your help like rallying the Castro neighborhood and the gay vote to my cause really helped. So he, even though... 
Harvey didn't win a city supervisor spot. The mayor says, like, when I take office in a few months, I will I will appoint you to this as a city commissioner to this like board, so you can like wow. still do government stuff. So you still rocking with the camera shop? Yeah, still rocking with the camera shop. So despite this progress that he's making and this good work he's doing, it's it's not really enough for him. And this is also the stage where he starts to get like a little less wholesome with his strategies to pursue power. There's always a turning point. Yeah. I mean, like what the earlier turning point was he went from like Republican Wall Street banker to like, you know, actually advocating for pe- things people cared about in his neighborhood, which mm-hmm. was good. Mm-hmm. This is the level where he outs someone and destroys their life for his own political opportunity. Not a good turning point. No. Put so, it in reverse, buddy. <laughs> you don't need that one. Turn yeah. it around. <laughs> yeah. So it, the year was 1975 and there was an attempted assassination of President Ford. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, uh, someone pulled out a gun to try to shoot the president, and there was a random bystander who saw the go- gun get pulled yes, uh, and just reached out and grabbed it and pulled it down just as it was fired mm-hmm. so that, that the shot like hit the ground instead. Yes. Saved the president's life for sure. The bystander's name was Oliver Sipple. The coincidence here is that Oliver happened to be an ex-boyfriend of Harvey's ex-boyfriend, Joe Campbell. From New York. Mm. And Harvey recognized this. The national spotlight was immediately on Oliver and, and like what he had done. Uh, it turns out that Oliver, this like bystander, happened to be on psychiatric disability leave from the military. And he was very concerned about this attention. There is some suggestion that the psychiatric leave might have been that he wasn't necessarily outed all the way in the military, but there might have been suspicion that he was uh-huh. gay and it was threatening to destroy his career in the military. Okay. And so he took a temporary leave and he was trying to like fly under the radar. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, he saved the president's life. Hard to... Hard to be anonymous. Yes. Uh, and so as much as he was like trying to downplay the press, he specifically did not want his sexuality disclosed. Of course. But Harvey recognizes this and doesn't care. He tells his friends like, um, it's just, this is a quote actually, it's too good an opportunity. Mm-hmm. For once we can show that gays do heroic things. It's not, not just all that caca about molesting children and hanging out in bathrooms. So he contacted the newspaper. I think one like interesting question here is he's like, it's too good an opportunity. And he frames it in terms of like, oh, it's too good of an opportunity for the gay community. Mm-hmm. But in reality, his action suggests that like he was like, this is just way too good of an opportunity for me in particular. Yeah. So several days after he contacts the newspaper, a columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle exposed Sippel as gay and explicitly mentioned his close friendship with Harvey Milk. Uh, which is interesting because they weren't actually friends. Uh, they didn't really know each other, but presumably, given that he was the main source, like Milk hinted that they were friends. And Milk is out at this point. Yes. Yeah, so Harvey Milk is way out. Okay. He is with his camera shop partner. Camera shop partner. Just for, making sure. That yes. They, this wasn't a oh they were really good friends and roommates scenario. No. Where he, he was is, still trying to fly under the radar. He is out, and he is making explicit connections to the person who saved the president's life. And explicitly outing mm-hmm. the Oliver Sipple to the newspaper who is then outing him to the world. Can't do that. 
Can't yeah. do that. So this announcement, right, it ran in San Francisco, but it's immediately picked up by national papers. Of course. And the byproduct is not just that this man who saved the president is gay. They also include Harvey Milk's name in the stories as a leader in the San Francisco gay community. So sure enough... Stepping on necks. He doesn't give a shit. Stepping on fucking necks. After this runs, like... Oliver Sippel is just, like, hounded by reporters. His entire family is because he was not out. Uh, His mother, who was, like, a very staunch Baptist, refused to speak to him. The follow-up is that his mental and physical health just deteriorated rapidly. He he started drinking heavily. He was uh, diagnosed with schizophrenia. He ultimately got a pacemaker, uh, gained a ton of weight. A few years later was found uh, dead in his apartment next to uh, a bottle of liquor and had been laying there unfound for 10 days. Oh. So just like... What a tragic end. All, like, this man who did something incredibly heroic just has his life fucking destroyed. Obliterated. But you know who rises to a national spotlight and gets a ton of attention in Time Magazine? Harvey Milk. Um, yeah, right before he died, Oliver Sippel, just to anybody who would listen would just say that he regretted grabbing the gun. He's like, I wish the president had died. I wish I just let him die because it was not worth it. You do one good deed and it's over. Then go unpunished. In this aftermath, Sipple is just like reeling, hiding from the press, trying to like get away from it all. And when they can't find Sipple to talk to, the reporters instead go to the only person that they can find in the article who's very available to them, Harvey Milk. Mm-hmm. After this national attention... He decides he can finally run for office and win. But B- Bigger office? Yes, because he's like, I don't want to be a city supervisor anymore. I'm going to run for, like, the state legislature. Oh, wow. So he, like, doubles down, right? He, he does this thing, destroys this man's life, and then he's like, I'm going to fucking run for the state legislature. He leverages publicity. He announces candidacy, though, five weeks after he started this job, if you'll remember. As a commissioner. That the mayor had appointed him to as a commissioner. Oh, wow. And That's the mayor, a real count your chicken situation. Well, and here's the thing. He was five weeks into it, and there was a rule that said if you're in a city office, you can't be running for another office. Yeah. So he does this job for five weeks and then immediately announces, and the mayor's like, if you announce, I have to fire you. And he's like, I don't care. And so he gets fired. So he does, like, five weeks in an actual, like, public service position where he could have, like, already started making a difference and, like, doing these things. Yeah. But instead decides, like, I'm a national figure now. I'm too good for this. And essentially forces himself to be fired, quits through announcing he's going to run for something even bigger and better because that was no longer good enough for a man who was in Time magazine. I mean, he hadn't even gotten through his like HR onboarding documents in five weeks. No, right? <laughs> he hadn't even gone through all the trainings. Yeah, he, and he accomplished nothing, right? Like, like if you're in it for public service, like he was unable to do anything substantive, right? I, I mean, name something important you've done in the last five weeks. <laughs> I can't. Plead the fifth. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Takes longer than five weeks. Okay, so here he is riding high off of this adrenaline of having like destroyed this dude's life by outing him and all this press. Does he ever express remorse? Not is he th- ever like, I should not have done that. I should have known better. I didn't. And sorry? He may have privately. In nothing that I saw was there any suggestion wow. of that. Nothing that I saw. Um. Okay, so here he is, and he's like, I'm running for this state legislature thing. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to, like, he's, like, writing this wave of gay activism. Here's the problem, right? His opponent for this position 
is also gay. For this position, though, not out. Oh. But he's running against another gay man. He kind of doesn't have the moral high ground that he is imagining. Also, he his ground game, his organization has not gotten any better. He's just incredibly disorganized. So as they're doing campaign expenses, if they need something, they're like the camera shop is their headquarters. They literally just like, oh, oh, we need flyers or something. They just take money out of the cash register. Oh, no. Like, yeah, there's I'm like. Sure that's all sorts of violations. Oh, yeah. Campaign finance Campaign violations. finance law. Like, what campaign finance law? <laughs> yeah, they, they don't have any records of anything. They, they have tons of volunteers, but like all of his notes for speeches and all of the names and contact info for volunteers, it's all just on scrap paper and receipts that's like lying around. Sure. So like nothing gets saved and reused. So like even all this national press he has, uh, he's a huge media talent, but then like he's like losing stuff and lashing out as his supporters and, and then his opponent, he goes in the press and like he oscillates between like writing high and then like calling his opponent... Uh, and the gay advocacy organizations backing his opponent, quote, gay Uncle Toms. Oh, whoa. Yes, which is like all sorts of wrong. Um, so the other candidate is not out, but does Harvey know he's gay? Yes, yes, okay. yes, yes. And there are gay organizations that know he's gay. And have but endorsed is, him. This is not like uh, people are having to choose, like widespread, this is not gay is now like a neutral thing and you can look at other policies other things that are of importance no no he's in comparison it's not but he's like making these illusions and he's like right like he is he is saying like the gay uh the gay powers that be in in politics are against me right in reality it may just be that he's like a super volatile super disorganized person who thought really highly of himself after like pulling a really like underhanded media operation yeah it's relatively close, but he still loses by 4,000 votes. Okay. So after quitting his actual government job to go run for one that, because he thought it was beneath him, to go run for the state assembly, he st- he loses. Okay. And is like, oh, okay. Well, now he should run for president. <laughs> he, he does decide immediately he's got to run for office again. Of course. Um, but he's going to run for city supervisor, the thing that he had much, he was much closer to winning before. Got it. So it's 1977 now. Okay. He has thought to himself, okay, didn't win the state legislature, but he realizes that they just changed the city supervisor elections rules. Mm. It is no longer that every member is at large. Okay. They change it to where every member has a district. And there is this district that is basically drawn around the Castro and his camera shop and the place in the city where everybody knows him. And he's like, I've got this. Instead of having it be the top vote getters, it's going to be district-wide. And at the same time, gay rights had become a national topic of conversation. There were these right-wing campaigns. Like, there were a few small cities like Miami, for example, that Mm -hmm. had already passed anti-discrimination ordinances. Mm -hmm. But then there was this right-wing campaign that was all about, quote, protect the children, that was like, Ugh. you can't have these gay people around our children. And they were actively repealing any anti-discrimination stuff and then writing in discrimination ordinances, essentially. Oh, that I, would, I wonder what that's like. Right. Has that ever continued to still happen yesterday? You can imagine. Ugh. And so, yes, it was an active national conversation. Milk is like, it's in my neighborhood now. I've got this national press. I've done everything right. And I'm going to become the first gay elected official in the United States. There's a problem, though. 
he is now running against this man who is named Rick Stokes. Okay. Who is also openly gay. And so now one of the two of them will become the first openly gay elected official in America. Now, Rick Stokes was like thoughtful and quiet lawyer. He was backed by all of the city's existing gay advocacy groups because for decades he'd been doing this work to like know the community, represent the community. Stokes had been out long before Harvey Milk had. And he, Stokes had actually like experienced much more severe treatment in his life. He, mm-hmm. he was once hospitalized and forced to endure uh, electroshock therapy. They did that. Yes, which was done to, quote, cure people mm-hmm. uh, at different stages. Harvey was like, I've been discriminated, discriminated against as well. And they're like, how? And he's like, I was um, discharged from the military for being gay. No one would let me cut my or made me cut my hair. <laughs> yeah. So the, he was never he was never fired for being gay. He started lying about his military service effectively. Ugh. Right. He was like, I've been discriminated against, too. Like this happened to me. It was there was no evidence that he had been discharged for being gay. Um, but he just he knew how to play the media and it made a good narrative. So, yeah. So even though Rick Stokes was had a much longer term presence in the community he was just quieter. He didn't make gay advocacy as central to his campaign as, as Harvey Milk did. And then when it comes it. around, basically Milk's popularity and media presence puts him over the edge. And so in 1977, he is elected to the Board of Supervisors. Yeah. And so it immediately makes national headlines. This person that they already knew from the previous story about the president's assassination attempt becomes the first openly gay person in the United States to win an election for public office. In my many years... As an activist and as someone leading an advocacy organization, what I can tell you is that often volume over quality wins. Yes. Like you can be as effective or more effective than others, but if you are not loud enough, then a lot of times you're not going to win the election. That is so incredibly true. It's a lot of loud, underqualified people <laughs> who uh, are comfortable being loud and unqualified because yes. the loud part is all that matters in it, a lot of places. It really is. It really is. And in fact, uh, just to emphasize this point uh, about how important the loudness is, mm-hmm. as Harvey Milk, with his loudness, has won over this other quieter gay man, who and, and Harvey Milk is getting all these national headlines for being the first openly gay elected official. Can we add some other qualifiers to this quiet person? Sounds like he's also qualified, smart, connected, uh, compassionate. Yeah, has a history of activism. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as this is all happening, Harvey Milk is taking the spotlight. The reality is that, believe it or not, Harvey Milk is actually not the first openly gay elected official in America at all. What? The first openly gay elected official actually was elected three years earlier in Michigan, her name was Kathy Kazachenko. Mm. She was 21, and she won elected office to the Ann Arbor City Council. And nobody was giving her credit. It turns out that just this combination of the fact that sexism in general, yes, a small town, mm-hmm. and the fact that she was very private and like not super loud like he was, like seeking the national spotlight, mm-hmm. she went broke this barrier. Was the first gay person elected to office. Yeah. Paved the way because immediately after her, a second woman, openly gay woman, was elected to the city council as well. Wow. There were multiple people in this town 
and they just didn't go seek National Spotlight for it, and so nobody gave them credit. Yeah, I mean, it's a difference between pulling into your city council position in a Volvo and, like, rolling <laughs> in in your fucking Maserati in San Francisco. You just show up as a parking lot full, full of Subarus and no one's saying shit about it. Yeah, yeah. They were they were uh, doing the, you know, work of activism. Like, they were running on, a, at the time, explicitly a platform of... Uh, non-discrimination, equal opportunity for people, decriminalizing marijuana, social services, like all of these things you would expect. But they were just doing it in a way that like was not also simultaneously seeking coverage in Time magazine. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it it ended up being 40 years or so, 50 years until like they actually got the press coverage and like the recognition that they deserve. I think it was 2015, Kathy ended up doing her first media profile about this. Wow. So for decades, just like quietly public, a public servant into like other forms of activism. So it turns out Harvey Milk, for all of the credit he gets, was not the first or the second openly gay elected official in America. He was far from it, just happened to be one of the loudest Mm. at a time in a place where um, he'd pulled a lot of other things together and managed to leverage that into his own coverage. For as many times as Harvey Milk has run for office and failed, by the time he gets there, he ever only ends up actually passing two pieces of legislation. The first is a an anti-discrimination ordinance. Okay. Which, not the first by any stretch of the imagination, but it was one of the strongest, which is great. Huge. Um, prevented discrimination uh, of people based on race, sex, or sexual orientation. Okay. Also... Um, the other piece of legislation or ordinance that he passed uh, was one about forcing people to pick up their dog's poop off the sidewalk. Also very beneficial <laughs> yes. for public health and safety. Not earth shaking, but it ended up getting a lot of media coverage. And so mm-hmm. he just like played it up. And of course. it went over great in the papers. But for all of <laughs> those two successes, he also made an enemy on the Board of Supervisors. So there was a board member named Dan White. Oh, I thought you were going to say it was just like a uh, a beagle who's like very upset <laughs> that he, like, he, he made an enemy. <laughs> the dogs. The dogs yeah. were his enemy. No. He shows up one day and there's just like Rottweilers <laughs> in his office very upset about them, him taking away their rights. Right? No. It was, uh, it was sadly not as fun as that. The man's name was Dan White okay. and... He was another supervisor. Mm-hmm. Him and Harvey got along well, it seems like, in the beginning. Okay. But at some point, there was going to be a home for troubled boys built in San Francisco. And they were going to build it in Dan White's district. And he was like, I don't want it here. Harvey, will you back me up? And Harvey's like, you don't want it in your district? Okay, fine. Great. And he's like, I got your back, Dan. And then a few weeks later, when the vote comes up, Harvey has talked to some people and heard about it. And he's like, oh, well, we really do need a a home for troubled youth. And so, like, maybe we are. So when the vote comes up, Harvey actually votes to build it and to put it in Dan's district instead. And Dan is just fucking livid. He feels backstabbed. He's like, I'm going to get this man. From that day forward, Dan White never votes yes on anything that Harvey Milk votes yes on. He always opposes him at every single vote at every single opportunity. Dan White is out to get Harvey Milk. Um, but Harvey Milk does have friends in San Francisco. He has supporters and he has allies. And one of his strongest allies in San Francisco at the time is Jim Jones of the People's Temple. 
What? So for those of you who don't recognize the name, uh, Jim Jones of the People's Temple was a church slash social advocacy organization Uh that held services and became popular and then ultimately uh, left San Francisco to form a compound in Guyana and then forced everyone to commit mass suicide by drinking cyanide in their Kool-Aid. Yes, where the term drinking the Kool-Aid comes from. Yes, this is like that Jim Jones, that that crazy fucking church. And it turns out they were some of Harvey Milk's greatest political allies in his time on the supervisor's board. So they'd been working in San Francisco as the People's Temple for a while. Uh-huh. And Jim Jones was like a big socialist. So he was like aligned in general to like the lefty uh, political world. Sure. At the time we are approaching, this is getting closer and closer to when they had gone off kind of the deep end and were about Mm -hmm. to essentially force everyone to kill themselves. Mm -hmm. And so there were starting to be suspicions raised. Harvey White was like, oh, no, no, no. They are political power. Defend them at all costs. In fact, so one of his quotes to his volunteers was, quote, make sure you're always nice to the people's temple. If they ask you to do something, do it. And then send them a thank you note for asking you to do it. (laughs) Wow. And this is so like, it's a large church, but it's not like a mega church. It's only like a thousand people, right? Yeah. It's only like a thousand people, but it's a thousand people that are very committed. Fair enough. So like they are out. If you, they are doing the groundwork. If you need volunteers for something, they show up like they are all in. Yeah. And so Harvey Milk is like, I got your back. This is like a bird in the hand worth worth two in the bush combination of like you have really committed cult members versus like your everyday Methodist. Yes, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah, but yeah. the thing is, because they are super committed cult members, when people start to raise suspicions mm. or like when when there's actual real concerns. Yeah. Harvey Milk still needs their support. And so he he doubles down on them uh, in February. He writes a letter to the president, who's now Jimmy Carter, defending Jim Jones as, quote, a man of the highest character when he was asked. And then when parents like or it was family members that weren't parents uh, wrote to the government concerned for their uh, I think it was a grandchild's safety. Right. At the with the parents who had like taken him down to Guyana. Yeah. uh, Harvey Milk wrote letters of support attesting to the character and safety of the church and the character and the safety of this child in his parents' care down in Guyana. So Harvey Milk particularly was like writing letters to prevent government action to go save this kid literally weeks before this child would be killed by being forced to drink cyanide because they were super convenient volunteers for his political campaign. Wow. Yeah, it's fucking rough. At the same time, uh, he has got this national profile. He's wheeling and dealing. He's got this enemy on the board of supervisors. But Harvey Milk is really concerned about um, the chance for his national profile to make him a target of violence. He started recording his own thoughts on tape recorder because he was afraid that he would be killed. And so he, he was recording like the things that he wanted with his office and his campaign in the city. And he had this one quote, um, if a bullet should enter my brain, let that bullet destroy every closet door. Really positioning himself to be a symbol. He saw himself as this way. Again, Mm -hmm. like if he had lost his election, another openly gay man would have been the one to win this position, right? But he fully stepped into and inhabited this role 
of symbolism. At that point, it's martyrdom. And he does to this day have a reputation because around this time he is about to be assassinated. But unlike the martyrdom that he has kind of inhabited, it turns out the man who kills him, Dan White, is going to kill him not for anything to do with his gay rights act advocacy. Mm. Mostly it's going to be fucking him over on the placement of this home for troubled youth. Yikes. Which doesn't seem to make any sense. But the story is essentially that like Dan White with this snub from Harvey Milk with all of these other problems gets frustrated with this board of supervisors job and quits in frustration one day. Mm. After he quits, literally hours later, he's like, oh, I really regret that. I don't have another job lined up. Cool down. Got some got some space. And he's like, OK, he goes back to the mayor. He's like, Mr. Mayor, can I have my job back? And the mayor's like, OK, yeah, sure. We'll sign the paperwork soon. And then Milk and the mayor start talking. And they're like, we could really use like some more diversity on the board of supervisors. And Dan White, he's like white and like mm. his district mostly isn't. And like. Maybe we shouldn't give him the job back. So after snubbing him, after fucking him over on the boys' home, then the mayor and White are talking, and they basically like, sorry, we know you want your job back, but we decided we're going to give it to somebody else. Wow. And Dan White loses his shit. Even though it's incredibly disproportionate and makes no sense whatsoever, he then sneaks into, on, December, on November 27th, 1978, he sneaks into the back window of City Hall Mm-hmm. Uh, goes to a back stairwell, finds the mayor's office, shoots him like five times, kills him. Mm. Walks out. Everybody's walking into the hallway to like figure out what the noise is. He f- sees Harvey Milk, asks Harvey Milk to step into his office, and shoots Harvey Milk five times as well, twice in the head, Jesus. and he dies. Harvey Milk was actually found in his office by Dan Feinstein, um, who is now representative. How's representatives for city for San Did Francisco? You say Dan or Diane? Diane. Yeah. Feinstein, yeah, for San Francisco. She was actually mayor right after that as well. Wow. Um, so she was there in the thick of all of this, been in, been in that game for a while. Seen some things. Yes. Tragic end. Tragic end. No one deserves to be shot in the head twice. No. So Harvey Milk was assassinated, which seemed like he was preparing himself for it. Not because of his advocacy, but really just... A misstep politically. Yeah, a political misstep. And so despite being the... First openly gay man elected to public office in America. Important clarification. And receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Mm-hmm. And uh, even in 2019, having a Navy ship, the USNS Harvey Milk, named after him. For the years of working on Wall Street and support for Republican politicians and policies, mm-hmm. and uh, the attacks against other gay activists, and even some who had done years more work than he had, and the outing of a man just frankly for his own political advantage more than anything else destroying the man's life in the process and the sex with underage boys uh, Mm -hmm. at a time when people knew better Mm -hmm. for all those reasons Harvey Milk probably not my hero not my hero either it's still it feels like a hard episode because unlike some people Right. If you are assassinated at essentially the the prime at the zenith of your political career, mm-hmm. your work is cut tragically short. So yes. even though he really only like passed one ordinance, right? Like he 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 didn't accomplish many things that were like tangible to in terms of like legislation to push forward gay rights. And he never um, got the chance for some reconciliation yeah. of the things that he likely with age would have come around to say, like, that was shitty. I shouldn't have done it. Yeah, that you would hope that there would be some reflection. Like, the the counterexample here is that there are some people like 
Sean Connery, for example. Yes. Right? Our episode with Sean Connery, the man is like 90 years old and he like, as a young man, he is violent against women. And then like, as an 80 and 90 year old man, he's like, I fucking hit women. I think it's right to hit women and I would hit women again. I and think like, you should also hit women. Yeah, and you should hit women Doubles too. down on and it. Like, what the fuck, man? Right? So like, if, if someone is cut down in their prime, like they have no opportunity to like reflect and be like, I was like in exploitative relationships. I like did these things and like I would not condone outing people anymore. Like they don't have any of those opportunities. Right. So it does feel like he became a martyr for mm-hmm. the cause and the cause is just. I mean, frankly, one of the things that really cemented his legacy was just that like after Dan White killed them, um, I don't know if you know this whole chapter, but like his defense. So they, the jury, ex- they excluded any gay members of the jury. They like sent them home. Right. So there was no gay members in the jury. Wow. And then his defense. This is not a joke. Dan White's defense was that he had a usually a very healthy diet. But the night before he had a lot of junk food and that like threw him into like a weird mood and that and that was why he killed two people. It it was like called the Twinkie defense. And it fucking worked. What? Uh, he didn't get off, but they lowered his charges to like voluntary manslaughter. He mm-hmm. spent five years in jail total for both of those murders. Jesus. Um yeah, it was just it was fucking insane. Anyway, when they announced that verdict, there were riots. I right mean, like yeah. it solidified that like, okay, no, this is not okay. This criminal justice system is corrupt. It, it became a flashpoint in this much larger movement that was propelled forward. Hopefully it could have been propelled without the unjust deaths of both like a member of the gay community and like a major advocate for it and the mayor. But it, it quickly became clear like the story and the movement ended up being like much bigger than a lot of the things that he was actually able to accomplish tangibly. Yes. Two final points. One. Uh, I feel like every day there are millions of people around the world who eat Twinkies and don't kill anyone. Yes. This is important to note. It's true. It's true. And two, I agree that, you know, all of this has been important for the conversation about gay rights and gay liberation and the movement moving forward. But and maybe this is for a totally separate episode at some point. I just think it's really important as we close out this episode to mention that pride exists because of black trans women and in all of the ways that it has become commodified and commercialized and and if we're going to celebrate anything then we need to be celebrating and uplifting all members of the LGBTQIA in plus community especially trans folks during this month well said and if people would like to continue on this journey and uh, be gay and do crimes with us next week, where can they find us? They can find us on social media at Your Heroes Pod or on our website at MeetYourHeroesPodcast.com. Yep. And please like, share, rate, review, spread the word, tell your friends. And until next week. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye.